Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Will Duffin. In the past at WEM, we've spoken to medics and scientists on the International Space Station, on research vessels in Antarctica. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Deep Sea, former US Navy diver and prolific underwater explorer and researcher, Joe DeTuri. He's currently living in a dedicated underwater habitat in Florida, where he plans to spend 100 days underwater, not only breaking a world record, but most importantly, conducting groundbreaking research, largely using his own body as a science lab. In this episode, we talk about what it's like living in a confined tin can, why access to coffee is just as important to oxygen, why it's actually a powder keg down there that could go up in flames at any moment. Joe even gives us a visual walk around of the habitat. And for that reason, it's well worth loading up the YouTube version of this podcast if you can. Joe tells us why the cure for diseases like Alzheimer's, cancer and traumatic brain injury lie at the bottom of the ocean. We talk about the physiology of saturation diving, its future application in science and research, and as an analogue for long duration spaceflight. Joe answers the question of whether there could ever be a permanent undersea human habitat in the Marianas Trench. We also dive, excuse the pun, into Joe's professional background, how he reinvented himself in the world of science after a long career in the military. I have to say, Joe is one of life's rare gems. His enthusiasm for his subject is truly contagious. I invite you to drink in his unique energy. So here is my conversation with Dr. Deepsea, Joe DeTuri. Joe, great Thank to you. see you. You're looking so well, given your 30 feet underwater. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm feeling great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity, man. How many days in are you now? I'm, uh, this is my 30th day today. And you get out. I have in, to keep looking. You get remember. out in June. Is that right? You're there for a hundred days. Is that really yeah, true? June 9th, I uh, June 9th, I emerge from the water, and uh, yeah, we'll have fun. <laughs> Amazing. I, I mean, it's uh, just thank you on behalf of everyone at WEM for allowing us to be part of such a historic mission. Great. And um, so what I would like us to do is talk about uh, what it's like being down un under sea for so long, for 100 days, the research yeah. we're doing. And I'm hoping you can also give us a little guided tour of the underwater habitat. Does that sound OK? I would be honoured to do that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, first things first, Joe, I, you've got certain luxuries down there, I understand. It is a, a dedicated underwater habitat. You've got some food in the fridge and uh, perhaps you could just show us your living quarters uh, and what it's like down there absolutely so here i usually sit in front of this window only because it's a really cool look and that's my outside right there so right here we have the uh, science station slash science area and basically i have one of the visiting professors down here and she's growing sponge cell cultures uh right so what she's doing is putting them in amino acids and seeing if they grow faster and uh, as they would in a normal uh, aqueous solution, like, uh, you know, normal saline sort of stuff. But we're just doing a whole bunch of science. And then here are my visiting scientists. Good morning. Uh, and Good they're morning. drinking coffee because coffee runs research, right? Coffee fuels research. 
So here is my freezer, which is just, you know, has a, has the basic necessities. Yeah. And then the fridge, which is kind of kind of small, like I said, coffee. And then we cook everything in the microwave. And then we have a small little sink area. But everybody goes, well, why do you cook in the microwave? Well, we cook in the microwave because look at that. Can you see that? That says 35% oxygen. So that's our oxygen level right now. So because we're at a higher partial pressure, the percentage of oxygen appears to be higher. So that makes the ignition point lower for everything. So you cannot do cooking down here. You can't do an open flame down here. You can't do a coil because it will literally blow up. Right, the whole place will blow up. So we don't want to I do that. No right? idea. So you're at 30 feet under the sea. So you're double the barometric pressure of the surface. You're two atmospheres. Is that correct? Yeah, not quite, but yes. Near yeah. enough. Okay. So, yeah. but the oxygen at sea level is 21. percent Down there, it's 35. Yeah. percent So you're living in a powder keg. Yeah, I'm living in a powder keg. It's kind of cold, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean so no maybe a small stretch but mm. so every good hotel has a pool and my ho my hotel has a pool so there is the pool it's called a wet pot nice. and basically it's just a wet area where you come up out of it and this is the way you enter and exit from the habitat right you obviously have a potty because you know what goes in must come out and it's it's a holding tank and a macerator and a pump and then i have a very uh there's a small shower there that that you have to leave to change your mind Whoop. and then i have my bedroom which is quite small that is a twin size bed and above that that bunk right up there is smaller than a twin size bed by one foot smaller in width and, and you're, shoulders, not, you're not a I mean, we've met joe and you're not a small man i don't know how you fit into that i don't fit on the top bunk i <laughs> i fit in the twin bed on the bottom and that's where i sleep and that's about it but really that's it and then there's visiting scientist quarters which they have the same exact layout that i have so it's it's quite small it's it's you know very uh it's comfy let's just put it that way So that's my entire house, right? Less than 100 square feet of usable space. Um, realistically, uh, you know, everything has to be, the volume of everything has to be kept down, right? Because if you have volume, you have 64 pounds per cubic foot of buoyancy in every cubic foot of air. So that's a thing like this and like this is 64 pounds. So that means you need that much weight to hold you down. So habitats have to be really heavy by design or strapped to the ocean floor, which is really, really difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, uh, and the next obvious question, Jamie, I mean, do you ever leave the habitat? You've shown us your hatch there. Do you, can you go out and do dives while you're, while you're down there? Yeah, all the time. So uh, every day, at least once a day, if not twice or three times, I go out for a dive and I just swim around the lagoon. I look at the lobsters. I engage with the fish. I take samples. I, you know, whatever. I'm doing whatever I'm doing, right? Uh, because you need to get out, but it's just like an astronaut doing an EVA. So, like, I'll go out and I'll clean this window because, as you can see, 
you have things starting to form on the window. So every once in a while, you just need to go out with your little greenie and scrub the window. I mean, it's like maintenance on your spacecraft, right? You need to go do it. Good to see you keeping everything uh, in, in ship shape down there. And um, uh, presumably, when you're, you're going out for your dives, one thing you absolutely must not do is ascend to the surface. So your blood is completely saturated with nitrogen. Um, True story. How long is it going to take you at the end of all of this to recompress yeah. when you finish? So the truth is nobody knows because nobody's ever done it. Uh, the math right now looks like it's going to be a couple of hours of pure oxygen decompression. I still don't know. But the good thing is uh, the U.S. Patent Office just offered me a patent on my device which is basically a device that can be worn here that can predict decompressive stress. So that's how I'm going to wind up decompressing is by using that and checking my autonomic nervous system and weather heart rate variability and how I'm stressed. And, you know, yeah. so that'll be my telltale for me because I trust that because I designed it. <laughs> uh -huh. But it's, it's yeah. pretty much uncharted territory. Is there a dedicated, um, uh, say diving bell or some, something with an umbilical that will take you to the surface. How will you, how will you recompress? No. So I'll just go out on a scuba tank yeah. and that scuba tank, that last scuba tank will contain hundred percent oxygen and I will swim around the lagoon with hundred percent oxygen for several hours. Probably two is my thought right now, but we're going to figure that out and then uh, we'll come to the surface. It'll be, uh, it'll be, it'll be great. That's true exploration, Joe. You just suck it and see, don't you? There's no precedent for this. You've just got to have a go and see what happens. I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, if I fall out, somebody better grab me and throw me in a recompression chamber. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the research you're doing. You've, you've introduced us to your colleagues. Um, that, that's yeah. great to meet them. Uh, so you're, you're very much the subject for much of this research, your own body. And some of the things you're looking at is uh, the aging process, what impact that has, yeah. what impact um, uh, being under pressure has on yeah. the aging, uh, around the use of yeah. hyperbaric medicine to treat things like traumatic brain injury. Just give oh, us yeah. a flavor of uh, of some of the, the the kind of most exciting, the things that are really exciting you about the, the research work you're doing down there. Right. So uh, you're the world extreme medicine people. So you get That's it. Right. Here we are in, the, in an extreme environment. Right. And we're trying to figure out what happens to the human body. So blood, urine, saliva, all that taken beforehand. We're looking trend analysis and then we do blood, urine and saliva the entire time we're here. Uh, so as a matter of fact, my my MD is coming down today. So everybody says, oh, well, you're doing this. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. There is no I in this team. So there's one guy here, but there's a staff of lots and lots of people. So I have a 10-person medical team, and my uh, lead medical director is coming down today, and she's going to draw 14, one, four vials of blood for me. And we're going to do every test from brain-derived neurotropic factor to insulin growth factor to uh, hypoxic-inducing factor number one, right? So, like, we're really doing, pulling out all the stops, doing all the testing for all the growth factors that you could possibly imagine. 
Also, I'm doing EKGs on myself, electrocardiograms, electroencephalograms to check brain function and uh, alpha-theta ratios and so forth. So like real, real good stuff. I'm doing pulmonary function tests because as your people probably know, uh, you have a good chance of reduced vital capacity in this high oxygen environment because oxygen doesn't work well with the alveoli for long term. So you have a reduced vital capacity, so you could enter into problems as this thing goes long. So we'll see. The, that's the answer. That's what we're looking at is human physiology. My hypothesis is humans need to live in the ocean. So if humans need to live in the ocean, we got to figure out a way to do that. So how do we do that? Mm, let's let's go ahead and start working through the numbers, right? So. And I'm just interested in the application of some of this research. We're already in the commercial sector, saturation diving is a really useful tool for you know, working on oil rigs and undersea commercial projects. But can can you envisage a future where um, more of humankind humankind spends more time under the sea? What you know, what kind of um, application would that have in the world of, of science and research, etc.? Oh, yeah. So exactly. That's exactly the point. So all this started back when I got a call from James Cameron's people about his 35,000 foot dive. So he got me on that call. I come into his house and we're looking at his submersible. Turns out he goes to the bottom of Marianne Trench, comes back up. He finds a sea lice. We pull the DNA off the sea lice. It's a partial cure for Alzheimer's. So December 24th of 2012, I have this epiphany and I go, everything we need is here. It's in this enclosed ecosystem. We have the yin, we have the yang. We have the dark, we have light. We have the disease, we have the cure. So let's start going to stop going to big farmer to look for cures and start looking in our environment for big cures. And I said, we need to go live in the ocean. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. So I put it on my to-do list, and here we are 10 years later, <laughs> finally getting around to it. I'm a little I mean, slow, but yeah. I'm getting there. It's, so, so I think that the cure for things is here, the, yeah. the you know, finding new species of fish, finding new things, you know, so that's what we're doing. And there's historically been a lot of focus on uh, drug research from uh, chemicals that have been discovered in new species in the rainforest. Yep. Uh, which is an ever diminishing uh, world, a biodiverse place, um, and and it's interesting to learn that there's so so much rich, uh, uh, rich drug possibilities in the uh, undersea world, but the same problem is happening there. The the biodiversity is ever shrinking. How do you see that playing out? Is that a big problem? Is there is this a race against time? Given that there's rising uh, temperatures in the ocean, there's coral bleaching events. Where, you know, there's so there's more environmental threats threats to the ocean environment than ever before. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. So depending on who you speak with, we're on the verge of the next great extinction. It may be the fifth. It may be the sixth great extinction. And guess what? When the things go extinct, they're gone. When you can't pull the DNA off them, then you do no longer have that cure. So let's say the the cure for Lou Gehrig's disease was in the Triceratops, right? That's gone. It's it's literally extinct. There's no pulling DNA. So now what, right? So if if we can get things before they go extinct, so 
there was a fire in uh, the Library of Alexandria in, uh, you know, at the head of the Nile and a famous general ran in. He, he had his troops. He divided them in half. He said, you guys all run in and start putting out the fire. You have run in and grab the great works off the shelf and take them outside. You protect and preserve those things. That's what we're doing. We're running around the universe and we're finding the new species of fishes. There's like about 20 million things on this planet. That's our, our thought, our best guess. We have found just over 5 million. Wow. So we're, we have a lot of work to do. And we are doing nothing. So if you look at the curve lines that kind of go like this, we're finding stuff. But we got to get from here to here before the next great extinction. And they're gone. Right now we're in trouble. So hopefully that's what we're doing. And by living in the sea, by populating the ocean, we can then find the things that, you know, look, if you've looked where you've always looked, you'll find what you've always found. You just got to look in different places to find different things. So that's, that's what we're doing. We're just looking at a place where nobody has really looked Indeed. before. Yeah. And definition of insanity is just doing the same thing and expecting different results. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of, um, uh, uh, of 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 undersea exploration and its its applications in research and science. It, it's often been said that we know more about outer space than we do about the deep ocean. Do you believe that to be true? Yeah. So realistically, um, uh, as of uh, 2017, three people had been to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So now there's you know because of new exploration, more people have been there, but still. There's not a lot that we know about that. Really, what are we talking about? 15 people have been to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. 77 people have been to orbit around our planet. And, you know, a, a number, a greater number have been to the moon than have been to the bottom of the Marianas yeah. Trench. Come on now. Why are, we, why are we going to Mars already when we haven't looked at the ocean, right? Yeah, so, all the yeah I believe yeah. that we need to do some deep ocean research, but... It's yeah. just not sexy and it's very expensive. So yeah, right. Yeah. This, it seems to be there's a bit of rebalancing required here. Everyone's getting all the, the Elon Musk's, the Jeff Bezos, they're all get, getting this buzz around space tourism and exploration. But yeah, no enough people are talking about the undersea. But see, part of what we're doing is we're helping them because these are resistance bands. So here we are doing resistance bands exercises, just like they do on the International Space Station. And for your readers and, and viewers, we're using these cuffs, which are katsu cuffs. And, you know, they are things that increase something called nitric oxide synthase, which is a smooth muscle mediator. And what we're trying to do is continue to build muscle with resistance bands and resistance bands alone. That's part of the problem that plagues astronauts is you reduce muscle use, right? So because you're not using those muscles, you're in zero gravity. The only thing you have is resistance bands. So you have to work with them. These things, if we can increase nitric oxide synthase, we can grow muscle in space instead of lose muscle in space. We're also working on building osteoblasts, which build bone. So they are osteoporitic or they become less uh, th their bones become more brittle when they go to space. Uh, so we're trying to work on answers for them because here we are in an isolated, confined, extreme environment, just like the International Space Station or 
that thing, whatever we're going to take to Mars, whenever we get there. And we're staying for 100 days, but the closest point of approach for Mars, it's 200 days away. So we're going to have to be in a tin can for 200 days. What's your vision going to be like after 200 days? We already talked about bone loss. We already talked about muscle loss. What's your vision going to be like? Your vision is 2020 because it's predicated upon your ability to see an object 20 foot away. When your focal point is only 15 feet, uh, your vision is going to be changing. So you're going to be, so we're going to send a bunch of myopic, you know, uh, people who have poor bone uh, and less muscle to land on a foreign planet for the first time and go explore, you got to think that thing through first. Let's let's fix a couple of things here first, and then we go to Mars. But that, you know, Elon Musk is Elon Musk. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren to his own, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, but it's such a valuable analog for long duration space flight down there. I, I, just one thing I'd like to ask you about, Joe, is what about long duration undersea exploration? I mean, you're already doing 100 days at a depth of 30 feet. What about something really extreme like the Marianas Trench? At the moment, the, the submersibles you have means your bottom time is, is very limited down there. Can you envisage a time where humankind could have a, a more permanent or semi-permanent dwelling in one of these subsea canyons and uh and, and actually do more detailed research than just a, a quick dive in and out is that something that could ever be done yeah i believe something like that can happen it's going to take a lot of infrastructure to build and you know just like we're applying money towards the space race and getting to space and and doing all this novel inventing and you know like elon's building these engines these raptor engines that are basically a nuclear reactor right and they got tons of power we need to apply that amount of resource to getting in the ocean and getting down deep and figuring out what species are around with a movable platform that can do science that won't leave the person under pressure, right? That's the problem. When you put the person under pressure, there's human tolerance issues, right? I cannot, no human can stay deeper than like about 33 feet for a dur extended duration of time. It's your, your body just cannot do it physically. It's not the decompression requirement. You just can't stay because your lungs won't interact very well. We need to get to the bottom of the Marianas Trench to find that next cure for fill in the blank. Uh, we're going to need a different vehicle. We're going to need, and we're going to need like better hands instead of these manipulators yeah. that only go up and down. We're going to need stuff that can turn things and rotate. So lots of engineering has to be applied to this. And this is what the next yeah. generation of explorers should be focusing on in my opinion can you give me a quick overview because we we talk a lot about the effects of zero g on the human body uh you know that the, the kind of the muscle and bone wasting that happens the changes to eyesight and even the, the, the heart as well but what are the key changes physiologically to the human body uh, under prolonged um uh high uh, pressure in, in in the context of saturation diving yeah, so in the context of saturation diving, you have the redistribution of fluid when you're in the water, right? Because you 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 have the mammalian reflex, which basically calms your autonomic nervous system when you submerge in water. The other thing is you have that redistribution of fluid. Much of your life in gravity is spent with your blood pooling in the lower extremities, your stomach and your 
uh, your leg uh, veins and arteries, right? So that's where most of that blood is pooled. So you, when you get that redistribution of fluid, you get a higher urgency to urinate, and then all of a sudden you're a little dehydrated. So you, that kind of works in a cycle as you're underwater. So it's one of those things you actually have to deal with. The other thing is you're constantly in compression, whereas everything else, when you go to the space station, you're in tension. So they get taller. I'm probably going to get shorter. That's what I suppose. But the good parts are, oh, the other part is the lung interaction, right? The lungs are made to filter 21% oxygen. That's how we've evolved and that's how we've grown, right? When you get to something like you saw, I have 35% oxygen. When you get to 50% oxygen, you get to the point where you have reduced vital capacity, substernal irritation, pain on inspiration, and a dry, scratchy cough. It's called pulmonary oxygen toxicity. When you start encountering pulmonary oxygen toxicity, you start affecting the type 1 pneumocytes, which are responsible for gas exchange. Now you're decreasing the efficiency with which you exchange gas across that alveolar surface so now you're becoming more hypoxic even though you're in an hyperoxic environment and, and nobody knows a lot about this that's why saturation diving is limited to 0.5 or 50 percent oxygen for only about 35 40 days so where it's slightly less than that here but we don't know what's going to happen from a physiologic perspective because nobody's ever looked at it. Even like, look, the world record is 73 days and everybody's like, well, you're just chasing a record. I'm like, really? Then why would I stay to a hundred days? Why wouldn't I just stay to 74? It's human tolerance, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so clearly the oxygen is a, a, a limiting factor in depth because it becomes toxic at certain parcel pressures. But what, what point in saturation diving would you use different gas mixtures? Would you substitute the nitrogen for a different gas? When does it all get really technical and you're using other other gases for uh, for underwater habitats? Or would you always be using air? No, the reason why. So in a habitat, the only economical, Joe's opinion, the only economical thing that you can do is fill this thing with air. That's the only economical thing, because could you imagine just having to recycle down helium? Helium for like $500 a bottle right yeah. now. So it's crazy expensive. Yeah. But realistically, uh, Martini's law comes into effect. And basically for every 40 or 50 feet, uh, you have another Martini, right? So here you are at, uh, you know, 100 feet. It's one martini, uh, uh, deeper than 100 feet. It's it's a martini after that. So 150 feet, it's two martinis. 200 feet, it's three martinis. I don't know how many three martini nights you've had, but they are not good. After that, <laughs> it starts getting crazy, right? Like, oh, yeah, we're talking yeah. about we're talking quickly. about World Extreme Medicine yeah. Conference crazy and dancing in a bar and <laughs> you know, it's like whoa yeah. crazy. So long story short, we start we start reducing the amount of nitrogen by supplementing it with helium. Helium has little narcotic potential. Nitrogen has a huge narcotic potential, you know, so we, we replace that gas uh, with, you know, something that has less narcotic potential. So when you go deeper than about mm, 150 feet, you should probably start thinking about using helium as a gas that supplements or slows down the uh, the narcotic potential of, of nitrogen. 
Yes, right. Yeah, I've experienced that myself, and I've done a you know, deep dive and you know, purposely yeah. gone deep quickly to to get knocked and and try and do your maths on a dive slate. And it's uh, it's crazy, isn't it? And and you just not your your head is not in the game at all. It's quite um quite weird yeah. experience. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I couldn't sure. do two plus two. I was I was all over the show. Oh, it's crazy, um, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is a big problem when you're when you're under pressure, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and Joe, one of the other things about this being a space analog is the the the, the psychological component. That's always a fascinating thing in a, in a confined environment. You're clearly having visitors, which is nice. So you you have some connection with the outside world. But how have you found it? so far being largely by yourself in a very small confined space and what strategies have you found helpful to keep your spirits up while you're down there so uh, i can tell you so like i said i am in about 100 square feet and yeah i am in this isolated confined extreme environment beforehand i did a series of psychological and psychosocial testing and not just a series i did 19 of the most famous, you know, the Stroop figures test, the Ray complex figures test, the, you, you know, Beck anxiety, Beck depression, all of that stuff, just to make sure that I was pretty level-headed, right? <laughs> so my doctor cleared me, which is all I really care about. And while I'm doing this, I'm under the care of a physician. So Friday is my next set of psychosocial and psychological testing. I'm going to do the same 19 over again. So we're really tracking this because if you put people in a tin can for long periods of time, they might go a little cuckoo, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to figure that stuff out. My coping mechanism methodology, I do a lot of meditation thought process like I wake up in the morning and I just don't get out of bed and, you know, check the phone. I go, okay, where's my center? Where's my ground? What am I doing next? What's, you know, and then I start thinking through my task instead of just going to something that's telling me my task, you know? So it, it's a lot of, you got to be in your own head, but not too much. You can't perseverate down that rabbit hole. So, you know, like I said, Psychologists are plenty and uh, and psychiatrists as needed, <laughs> but I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> not crazy, not crazy yet, but I can just see you're on the edge, Joe. Any minute now, you're gonna just. <laughs> I'm a donkey on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's great. Meditation. That's clearly the the secret. Um, maybe we should be telling the astronauts that. Um, when oh, we're on yeah. the way to Mars. Meditation and and honestly, for me, it's gratitude because look, man, I get to talk to cats like you and like, you know, we, we met earlier in the World Extreme Medicine Conference and all that great stuff. But like I get to reach out to people like you. I get to hang out with people like Dr. Shirley Pomponi, who was freaking doing cool research and talking about what diseases can be cured by sponges like oh man like i'm learning a ton so therefore i'm grateful so my attitude changes you know towards life and everything yeah, absolutely so. and that's one of the things i love about you joe is, is you've um there's very few people in this world that can get as excited as you do about a sponge or uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, uh oh no uh, lycopeptides <laughs> in fish surely sitting here going i do i do <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some audiences don't quite share the same level of enthusiasm that you do. 
Um, but I think I feel that 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 is contagious, isn't it? When you really have a passion about something, using something like a hundred day undersea mission is a great vehicle to share some of that energy and um, and inspire that next generation of undersea dwellers. One hundred percent. So I feel like it's my duty to, to when kids reach out to me on social media to answer them. Last night I had a girl that asked me, "So are you rich?" And I'm like, "Oh, good lord." You don't know what being a scientist is, girl. So I wrote her back and I said, listen, I, I'm okay and I'm not worried about where my next meal is coming from. However, comma, do something that makes you happy, girl. Like, do something exciting that when you go to work, you're like, I'm lit up. This is terrific. And you're not even working. I'm like, people like, you working? I'm like, not really. I'm, I'm having fun. But that is my job is to do this and have fun. So if you find that passion when you're young, Oh, could you imagine the next generation of explorers finding stuff and being cool? And who cares how much money they make? They'll figure it out. It, you know, food will come. 100%, Joe. <laughs> if you do something you love, you never have to work a day in your life, do you? You get it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think is that in terms of role models for young people, you know, I've got kids. And uh, uh, yeah, if you look at the world of social media, there, yeah, a lot of it is very uh, anchored around uh material wealth and status and uh, i think it's great to see more role models and spokespeople for the world of you know, science and that that having value you know that 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 sense of of discovering and sharing knowledge that in itself is a form of wealth yeah oh yeah so like people like you rich i'm like beyond the wildest measure that i could have ever imagined from a poor kid from new york but it has nothing to do with money <laughs> it has to do with experience experiences i get to meet great scientists that sit here and talk to them like i met a microbiologist and we're talking about finding new species of single-celled organisms while we're down here it's like what <laughs> so yeah it's pretty nice it, you get turned on by this stuff and you're like yeah okay yeah. i can do that yeah <laughs> And uh, the other thing is, I, I I wanted to pick up on is you you had a long career. You're a veteran of of the U.S. Navy as a Navy diver, and how you remodeled yourself. Uh, lots of people exit the military, and uh, you know it's a real crossroads in your life, deciding where you go. And 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 you found this. Uh, that you you subsequently did your PhD and, and and entered the world of research and science. So can you just speak a little bit to, to how you? how you've managed to redirect the course of your life in, in your kind of post-military season of, of your life. Ah, so I did what every person does when they retire from the Navy is they go back and they start working for the military just to go do certain things. So I did that for just about a minute and a half. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So you kind of get to that point where you go, this is not for me. Like I did that and that was cool, but that's done. Now, you can live like that, and lots of people do, and they just they don't want to step outside their comfort zone. But people, listen to me. Every once in a while, step outside that comfort zone, you'd be surprised what comes your way. So I stepped outside. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm an engineer by trade, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what problem needs to be solved? Well, a bunch of my guys were killing themselves, 22 a day. And I was like, okay, that's not going to work. We're going to have to fix this. And people are like, well, you can't fix traumatic brain injury. I'm like, oh, oh, really? Here, hold my beer. 
I will be right back. <laughs> right. And then here we are, you know, five, six, seven years later, and we have a really good partial cure and we're doing great things for people and just giving people hope and, and, you know, inspiration to, to maybe not take their lives to see that they can do something different outside the military. So something has to compel you to change. And then before you know it, you're like running down the road with scissors and you're like, okay, I think I might be able to do this. So, yeah, it's really, uh, it's really a hard thing to, to branch out and make a change like that. But at some point you just know in your head and you go, okay, whatever I'm doing, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I want to yeah. do something opposite. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a common theme. So many of our speakers and the people we engage with in world extreme medicine from you know, the world of kind of mountains of deserts of jungles have, have got that military background. It's such a great foundation to have for all things. Uh, but the, yeah, the big question is how you use that and how you then reinvent yourself in that, in that post-military life. And it's great to see you've really thrived. And yeah. um, I'd just like to pick up on a couple of more specifics about the research. You've, you've mentioned the, 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 the uh, hyperbaric, uh, medicine as a treatment for traumatic brain injury just give me a quick overview of what that's all about so traumatic brain injury what we're finding is that we're, we're we want to increase cerebral blood flow right so uh, you know look everybody's trying to fix traumatic brain injury at this point and kind of like science wins over bs all the time but what works works right so if you're helping people keep helping people stop hurting people drugs are never the answer so you got to figure out how to get your mind right, how to get your body right. And we see all kinds of problems. We're treating people in hyperbaric medicine right now, and we used to treat them at high partial pressures. Now we're down to 1.6, 1.5, 1.75. So we're way lower now because oxygen is a vasoconstrictor, right? So if you give too much of it, you get too much vasoconstriction. So what we're doing is we're finding you get more oxygen delivery with less vasoconstriction at the lower numbers. So you increase cerebral blood flow, which we know hyperbaric oxygen does. We increase stem cell proliferation, which we know hyperbaric oxygen does. And we increase telomere length. So all those things are good. And we decrease inflammation and uh, yada, yada, yada. We increase vascular endothelial growth factor. So there's a lot of goodness in hyperbaric medicine. But it's like anything else. It's not the only thing that you should be doing if you're if you have a traumatic brain injury. You should be doing a combination of everything. Look, plants need food, water, and sunlight. You don't just need sunlight. They don't just need water. They don't just need food. They need it all and all in the right combination at the same point. So your brain is like a plant. It needs a whole bunch of things. So treat the person from a physical, physiological, and psychological perspective simultaneously. You can help them when it comes to traumatic brain injury. That's my thought yeah god that's real cutting edge stuff i yeah i love yeah. that it, it you say it's such a difficult condition to to manage it. and any research out there that's looking for new novel treatments is 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 brilliant and the interesting part is you know people say traumatic brain injury like you know there's a spectrum of traumatic brain injury from here to here it's like oh yeah i have a i have a mild concussion to i can't I can't speak or tie my shoes. These are wholly different parties, right? So to say you're fixing traumatic brain injury across the spectrum that's as wide as the world is, uh, you know, uh, round, it's crazy. So it's hard. Yeah, yeah. 
And you're joining us this year, Joe, on the 11th to the 13th of November for the World Extreme Medicine Conference in Edinburgh, UK. And I will uh, not miss that. <laughs> yeah. Can you give people a sneak peek of what you'll be talking about? You're going to be telling them all, obviously, all about this project. Uh, anything else that you can uh, tempt, entice people with? 100%. So I'll be coming there and I'll be giving the data that is coming out of this particular study that we're doing right now. We'll finally have the data. We hope to have the data. I will have the data. But, you know, the point being that we're going to find out the answer to what happens to vital capacity when you're in this partial pressure of oxygen for that long, you know, figure out what happens to the to the muscle growth, what happens to all the stuff that we're doing to test. So tune into that. We're also going to give a sneak peek of uh, of hyperbaric medicine, and hopefully we're going to preview some hyperbaric medicine learning uh, that's going to go on between us and the World Extreme Medicine Conference. I hope, I hope. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Well, that's all we've got time for, Joe, and I think you probably need to get back to work and get another brew on. Uh, coffee's not going to drink itself down there. That's the God's honest truth. That's it. Yeah, so... <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I wish you the very best of luck for the rest of your time under sea and look forward to, to learning about all the great outputs and, and uh, learnings that, that come from, from your 100 days. Yes, sir. Hey, thank you very much. And hey, man, keep rocking on with your bad self because there's not just this extreme medicine. There's altitude, you know, there's the, you know, the jungles, there's, there's yeah. the Hara Desert. I mean, there's lots of places that need to be explored. So you guys keep rocking on with your bad self. Oh, thanks, Joe. Hey, do you know, that's it's all about sharing the love. You know, the learnings between all of these different silos. There's so much we can gain for, from each other's activity. And there, we're just the, here. We're just the champions. We're just the, the meeting point. Uh, uh, you know, all these good people come together and, and, and learn from each other. That's what it's all about. Amen to that, brother. Good stuff. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. It's great seeing you. Take care. Take care, man. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.